welcome to SED. I'm your host, Jane Dagme, Editor-in-Chief of Designers Today. SED covers the wonderful industry of interior design from various, often eclectic, angles. At its most literal, SED is the spoken complement to what's written in the pages of our magazine. Esoterically speaking, SED, S-A-I-D, stands for Something About Interior Designers. In a nutshell, the podcast is devoted to the ongoing curiosity and admiration we have for these diverse, passionate, and often quirky individuals. SED celebrates the way they think, work, live, and define themselves. Enough said. Let's get into our show. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Brad Kleinard. Brad is a certified financial planner. He and his family run High Point Financial Design, where the client focus is on design professionals. It wasn't always so, and in our conversation, Brad will tell you how and why he pivoted to support this extraordinary group of entrepreneurs. Brad is committed to helping his clients live freely and abundantly, and each financial plan is custom because it is values-based. As Brad says, personal finance is much more personal than finance. It's a different topic for our podcast with lots of takeaways on subjects like emergency funds, how to start getting your kids engaged in finances, and how to manage erratic, or as Brad calls it, lumpy pay cycles. In addition, there are three handouts that Brad is offering to the Designers Today community. There is an abundant financial life blueprint, also 10 keys to financial foundation, which is a sheet that will familiarize you with some of the details associated with aspects of financial planning, such as education planning, retirement, taxes, and estate. And lastly, there's a happy money handout, which is all about the science of happier spending. I think these handouts will make much more sense after listening to the podcast, and they can all be found at www.hpfinancialdesign.com com backslash designers today. Talking about money and finances has never been the most comfortable discussion topic for me, for numerous reasons, some of which I share. But after speaking with Brad, I have a different attitude and it doesn't feel so intimidating. Whether you're seasoned about your own financial planning or more of a novice like me, I think there's much to glean from our conversation. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Brad Kleinard. Hey, Brad, it's Jane Dagme. How are you today? Jane, it's great to hear from you today. Yeah, I'm excited. I have never, ever had a certified financial planner on our podcast. And um, so I'm going into an area that I'm not very familiar with and I'm not super comfortable with, but this is part of my growth process to, <laughs> to have you on the show. So welcome. Well, th- well, thanks for having me and uh, completely understand. I think finances are uh, a topic that make uh, a lot of people naturally uncomfortable and we, we try to uh, make it a little easier for people. Yeah. You know what? That would be like to me, if by the time we're done this, if we make it a little bit easier for people that they're not so scared, that would make me feel really good. So let's let's have that be our goal, okay? Okay, good goal here. All right, so first of all, let's start with the very basics. What does a certified financial planner do? And conversely, what do you not do? 
Yes. Well, um, so I, I like to think of our, our health in general, that there's four key components. So it's our physical health, our relationships, and that's uh, family, friends, environment, our spiritual health, but then also our financial health. And I think the the financial health is something that a lot of people uh, don't address or, as we've mentioned, have concerns around. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when an individual needs to uh, get help with their finances, we all outsource uh, parts of our life. You will want to go and find a an advisor or somebody to work with. And there's a lot of nuance in the industry where you can work with a financial uh, planner, a financial coach, uh, uh, a financial counselor. There's different language, but we recommend somebody work with a certified financial planner, uh, which is a designation much like um, ASID in the design industry. It provides, um, it removes certain conflicts of interest and allows the public to know that they're working with somebody um, who is has qualifications across the planning spectrum. Okay, okay. Um, and so I love the, the title that you have in your company in, in High Point Financial Design. You are the Director of Financial Design. Like, I love that the word design is in your title. It feels like there's a creative aspect to what you do. Is that true at all? Yes, absolutely. And and uh, Jane, as you know, um, I grew up in High Point, so I think I've always been uh, furniture market and design has always been in the back of uh, the, my mind, and it's something that I've, I'm uh, passionate about. Uh, there's a lot of words in our industry that uh, have kind of innate connotations to them. So historically, um, I've been in the wealth management business. But that word wealth management, I think it's um, we've already talked about that some people are nervous about talking about their finances. Um, I think that wealth as a word is very arbitrary. Uh, we have clients that have um, high net worth, yet they've their friends um, may have $100 million or $200 million, and they don't feel wealthy. And then I have individuals that have uh, less than a million dollars, but they feel wealthy because all of their needs are covered. Mm. So in in the way that we frame our business, I did not want to be a wealth manager. I wanted to be a financial designer. Uh, I thought that was more approachable and it really uh, opens up a lot more conversation. I love that. I love that. I want to uh, talk a little bit about your background because I love that it is a family business. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a soft spot for family businesses. And um, so and so what I'd actually like to, and what I thought was really interesting is that um, you t- had said that you learned the importance of being a good steward of money at a young age. And I don't think because your parents were in the investment business, you automatically become that because I think that sometimes people would rebel, right? Like kids don't always follow what's in front of them, but I love that you did, I mean, that you understood about money at an early age. And I was just wondering about what that was like when you were young and how you started saving and did you have a job and things like that? What was it like growing up in a financial family? Yes. Well, um, this is taking me down memory lane. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my dad kind of had a uh, expertise for buying uh, North Carolina municipal retirement home bonds 
And so a, a funny story is we, we would grow up and I, we had uh, dad had clients across the, the state. So family vacations oftentimes was traveling and visiting nursing homes where he had raised money through bonds to, to fund these. And then we would visit with uh, clients. So from a very early age, I always remember that most of dad's clients kind of felt like uh, distant cousins in, in a way. Um, from the money side, uh, I definitely had some experiences that I think were unusual because I remember um, dad would always try to buy uh, some, have me buy stocks uh, in my personal account. And it was very small, you know, I buy one or two shares and, uh, but we would have those conversations and always try to get me investing in things that were, uh, that were meaningful to me. So uh, growing up, of course, that was Krispy Kreme donuts. That was oh. my, my first, my first stock. And it kind of got me interested in the the concept of investing. I love that. But we, we do think that I think when as parents, when parents are not comfortable with their personal finances, though, it does create a challenge for uh, them to not be able to share those foundations with their their children. So that is, I think, something that needs to be uh, discussed in a family. Right. See, in my family, my mother's always been sort of the purse string holder. And, and um, I think she learned a lot from her father. But when it came to discussing money with my sister and I, it was very hush-hush. Like, it wasn't an open discussion. And I don't know if if that has made me uncomfortable, you know, like, because she was kind of uncomfortable talking about it, and if it translated down to, to me in that way. Um, but how, how um, like, you, you invested in Krispy Kreme. I love that. Are there any ideas that uh, you would just tell parents about um, what may make them more comfortable around money or how to start getting a kid interested in, you know, economics, the basics? Well, I, and I think some of the things that you're talking about, Jane, are that the natural psychological development that we all go through. So okay. as children in our first you know, five to seven years of life, everything is provided for us. Therefore, we feel like the world is a safe place. And then we start to get subliminal messages or direct messages from our parents. You, you mentioned your mom and some of the, the things that she said to us. Oftentimes, those initial memories uh, around money stay with us our whole life. So we have an idea that uh, maybe somebody said money is the root of all evil or money doesn't grow on trees, or cousin, uh, cousin so-and-so uh, grew up with a silver spoon mm -hmm. in her mouth. Those are things that really stay with us. And then we may we take those lessons that we've learned and teach our children. When, when I think about positive conversations with our children around finances, I like to keep it very simple, uh, but I do encourage people to go back to a basic uh, budgeting uh, schedule where I like to teach children that money does three things. So we have um, set up a, a set uh, budget. When I was young, I, I got actual piggy banks to do this. I know a lot of parents do this digitally now, but um, we recommend that 70% of money goes to saving, or, or excuse me, spending, 70% for spending for the child, 20% uh, to savings, so they get accustomed to saving, and 10% for giving mm -hmm. or charitable. And I think it's very important that for children that they understand that 
the value of giving to other people and the benefit of, of that for ourselves. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. So, and as far as family conversations go, one thing that we've found very helpful is I think the problem, one problem is that families talk about money all the time. It's not in a container. So with all of our clients, we're big uh, fans on trying to encourage one family financial conversation a month. And on a set day, typically we try to recommend Tuesday or Thursday, uh, evening because we don't want to mess up a weekend. Nobody wants to think about finances over the weekend, but it's so many couples, they do. They wait till Saturday to start talking finances. Uh, you should really enjoy the weekend with your, your family, not thinking about the finances. Right. I love how thought out this all is. That's that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I've got my daughter here visiting me. I'm like thinking, hmm, we're going to have a conversation while she's here on a Tuesday or Thursday. So also, Brad, I think it's really cool that your mom and dad, did they work together as a, as a team? Were they in business together? That's, that's correct. And mm-hmm. um, so uh, they've, I don't know, th- 34, 35 years now, they have worked together. And uh, of course, every uh, anybody that works in a family business know that that brings all sorts of uh, uh, positives and also dynamics. So um, mom and dad, I think it's one reason I have so much respect for them is uh, they worked so well as a team, knowing which one had uh, special specialties. And I think in some ways, um, you know, the finance industry has always been uh, a very male-dominated industry. And having watched how my mom works with clients and uh, the, the the feminine touch she brings in certain places, that um, emotional intelligence has been so important and, and a special part of our practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she's still part of the practice. I mean, everybody's still, still in you, you just kind of pivoted the practice, right? A couple of years ago to focus on designers. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that happened. That's correct. So my, my mom and dad, they started out, um, it was called interstate Johnson lane. It was a small regional brokerage firm. And back in the day, uh, banks were legally not allowed to own, uh, investment companies, and the regulations changed. I won't get into all the, the history of the regulatory environment, but there was a lot of lobbying so that then banks could buy investments. I, I think that structurally, I would like to see those two separate. So the companies my parents worked for, they were bought out by um, ultimately one of the largest banks in the country, and that provided certain restrictions on how we could do business. So um, about four years ago, we started saying it's time for us to c- take control of our destiny. Uh, we became independent business owners, started our own company, and specifically with our passion for working with designers, that allowed us then to start marketing across the country without any regional uh, restrictions. Uh, so ever since then, we've really wanted to focus on uh, serving the design community. For you personally... What do you love about what you do every day? So I've kind of tried to shift away from some of the norms of the industry. And we talked about kind of you you talked about how wealth is a, a difficult word. My, my passion really became when I built up enough personal wealth on my own, I said, what, what am I doing with this money? And that lead, led us to our slogan, which is intentional planning, abundant living. I started realizing that 
too many of our clients were were really worried about their money, but they didn't have a practical use for it today. And I think that's one of the challenges that um, some of the designers face is they'll talk to a planner. The planner wants to put a plan in place that's only here's where you're going 30 years from now. You've got to make all of these sacrifices today so that the spreadsheet looks really good 30 years from now. Uh, I think that money should really empower us at all stages of our life. So for me, the thing that I love most is having an impact on on our clients. And we see that in transitions and and life moments. So at the office, we have this, uh, we we kind of have this internal game. We call it moments of wow. And it's a a folder that we we keep of all the, the major impacts that we have on clients' life. And I think that's the thing that's really exciting is that no week is the same for me. I think back over this year, we've we've had a, a couple funerals, uh, but we've also had um, paid off mortgages. We've helped uh, children get their college uh, funding. Every day, there is something challenging uh, that a client has a life situation and the ability to help walk with people through that and make clarity about the financial implications uh, is is really what really excites me. Mm-hmm. Is there a time? Is it ever too early to start financial planning? Um, I would, I would say no. Uh, I, I think everybody really needs a financial plan. I think that's where there's a gap in the delivery. Um, our industry is not equipped to hint, uh, to provide financial planning from for everybody. But we have, um, working with my parents, we actually have a couple families where we're working with four generations of, uh, of, of family members now. And that's also exciting. I feel like in some ways, what you're doing mirrors some of the things that are that designers and decorators are doing. I mean, that's a, a path very similar to designers, you know, working multiple generations, um, impacting lives, you know, on a daily basis. So... I think there's a lot of well, parallels. I think what, one of the parallels to me is that is so important is how personal it is. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that we really, I really highlight is that I think personal finance is more personal than finance. The, the industry likes to focus sometimes all on the finance. And I think that's where if we're highly analytical, we can get lost. But the, some of the designers I work with, that when, when you're going into a home uh, you're going into somebody's sanctuary, the, the amount of detail that a designer needs to know about those families, how they live day to day, what are, what are we cooking? Uh, what needs to be organized? Wh- what is in the, the uh, nightstand? Those are all things that are very intimate and personal. And I think it's one reason I love, love my job is we do get to understand how people's lives are on a day-by-day basis. Yeah, totally. I get it. I, I get it. And when somebody comes to see you, um, what do you suggest? I mean, you know, do you, do you have an initial conversation, a consult, you know, a consultation, or should they have things prepared to bring for a first meeting? What what happens at the first time you speak to a new potential client? Well, I, I like to meet people exactly where they are at. So um, I. Typically, before we actually get together, I'll send out an email and, and kind of just gauge a few things. Uh, people typically fall into one of three categories. They have no idea about their finances at all. They have a second, they may have a broad idea, or third, they have every detail uh, down, down to the wire. 
So one of those first things I do in that first email is a communication preference. And we can kind of gauge very quickly, where does somebody fall on that? Right. Um, the If somebody is a highly detailed uh, person, it's important to, to meet them where they're at and have a detailed conversation. However, and this is part of really making things comfortable, uh, I've had clients that have come to me before and said, I don't have a clue. I've got a box full of statements and I throw everything into this box every month. And I just, if it's not, if I don't look at it, it's not there. And being able to have patience and a process to work through that slowly uh, is important. But it, so yes, every uh, relationship starts with a conversation, but how quickly we go from uh, step one to, to filling a sense of clarity uh, takes time. And, and, and it's different for everybody. Yeah, um, I can relate to that sort of box of putting things in and not really looking at them. Um, and is, that, that is the, kind yeah. of the first step that we always get to is, and that's a big thing for me, is understanding that people have clarity. Uh, sometimes I say that we're we're puzzle builders. Um, do you do you puzzle, Jane? Oh, I love puzzles. Yes. So so anytime we we have a puzzle, I know there's a lot of strategies. My, my wife and I, we we start with the edges. We, we build the edges and we start to put people, uh, things in the middle. Do you, yes, is that same, your direction? Yes, it is. So I look at the finances in the same way as if we're building that puzzle, I like to think, I like to visualize everything. Let's get away from all of the statements. And um, we used to call those old financial reports. They were one inch doorstops. I like to have everything visualized <laughs> on one page. And it's, it's, it kind of amazes me how few people have all their finances visualized on one page. But once you have that map, uh, we call it the, the dashboard, then you can easily identify where there are headaches, where there are pitfalls, but also where there's planning opportunities of, of things that you could take advantage of that you're not. Mm -hmm. I, th I think there's a lot in this. Um, I mean, I'm sure that part of your job is to educate your client as to what is possible because it's a little bit of, and I, I, I never know, um, like I get slogans and colloquialisms wrong all the time, but it's that like, you don't know what you don't know sort of thing. And I, I feel like, you know, with, with people that aren't, um, specialists in this category, there's a lot that they just don't know that you must open a lot of eyes, you know? Yes. And I think a lot of it, um, I mean, there's definitely a few things come to mind, uh, business owners especially. And I think that's one of the unique things since we are not just advisors, but we own our own business. Uh, I'm I'm vested in understanding what are the pros and the cons of, of uh, having advantages as a business owner. One of my favorite things to talk about um, from a college uh, planning perspective, a lot of advisors will say, well, college is one of the most expensive things you'll pay for your whole life. So let's set up a 529 account and fully fund it uh, and then just pay for tuition when the children go to school. And there's absolutely nothing with 529 accounts. They can play in a very important role and the investment savvy there is important. But if you independently own your own business, there are all sorts of um, planning strategies that we can use with business owners uh, to help uh, reduce the cost, help uh, structure things to help the government uh, through taxes and uh, credits fund college in a much more efficient way. So I, I start to get a little bit uh, nerdy. That's where the, the the geeky part comes right. out. 
but there are some, I, I like to think of those planning strategies as being very creative. Hey listeners, it's Jane Dagmy, Editor-in-Chief of Designers Today. I'm so glad you found our podcast. Did you also know that we print our magazine eight times a year and mail it to your home or office? Yes, interior design professionals can request a complimentary subscription by simply going to designerstoday.com and clicking on the button at the top that says subscribe. It's that simple. And while you're there, if you hit the newsletter tab, you can sign up for our weekly news as well as that of our sister publications. And now back to our show. I love that you studied economics and psychology in college. I feel like um, it's the perfect blend. I mean, isn't it's kind of like what your what your business is about, you know, plus more, of yes. course. But but that's cool. When you were in school, I know you said you were like you had this dream of being a tennis coach um, and having, you know, that would be like your sort of fun job after hours. But were you thinking that you'd go into, you know, be an investment banker or go into the family business? Had you already figured that out? Well, and um, I think this ties in, in some way towards, I think, some of my work with with grief. Uh, I, I truly um, when I was going through college, I thought that my wife was going to be. Uh, the, the family breadwinner. She has um, some models in her family of um, uh, very empowered women who have uh, really succeeded at the highest level in uh, in the corporate creative world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were going to be encouraging her. Uh, my wife, uh, back in college when we were engaged, she started to have some very severe uh, health problems. And those led us to needing to... Um, Kind of course correct and change. So I knew at that point, um, we got married directly out of college. And I said, well, I've got to find health insurance. And I, I got together with mom and dad and I was uh, talking with them about the things that I was looking into. And they said, well, Brad, this is a perfect time for you to uh, come in and join us. Uh, they, they framed it so beautifully. They said, just think of it as a year of grad school. If you um, if you like it, stay. If not, you can go on to something else. And at, at first, I was sort of hesitant because I didn't uh, know if that was the direction I wanted to go in. But as I spent that first year seeing the impact that mom and dad had on other families and understanding how they worked with people, it really became a, a, a passion for me. Mm-hmm. And and then um and then sort of did you you said that you had envisioned that your your wife was going to be the breadwinner in the family so is she what what does she, what is she doing now you had mentioned in in one of our communications she's a pastry chef yes so she went to the um she was in the first class at Johnson and Wells in Charlotte so she's a a french uh classically french pastry chef mm-hmm. and she uh she always has specialized in uh, breads and wedding cakes. So uh, there's, we've definitely had a, a few fun experiences around catering weddings. It's uh, I, she finds it relaxing. That that that's that's stressful to me, but it's also exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I think weddings are stressful. Um, and uh, and is she is she doing okay now? Well, she's continued to have um, a lot of challenges with her health, and we take it um, sort of one day at a time. But I think that really uh, did start to open the door uh, to to my research in 
how can uh, I process the grief that I experienced? And um, over time, we've also, I started noticing a lot of our new clients, uh, I think because of the empathy in which I try to approach conversations, we started having a lot of uh, referrals for recently divorced women. And it's a time of transition in life. And I wanted to get more training to really increase my my skills and my ability to be present and to walk with people uh, through challenging moments. Okay. And is that when you went and you got your certification to be a grief recovery specialist from? That's, that's correct. Mm-hmm. So the, and I, I think that um, our society kind of has a negative connotation uh, sometimes with the word grief yeah. because it gets associated with, with only death. But the reality is, is that we face there's a list I've seen of over 40 different experiences in life that can be um, associated with grief, and only about three of those have to do with death. So if we redefine grief as really, I say there's six situations. So it's anytime we have unmet hopes, unmet dreams, or unmet expectations, or anytime that we wish something was more, better, or different. When we use that frame, we can see that there's all sorts of little losses that we have that can trigger that grief response. Um, so I think that framework and that language has allowed me to have more empathy and understanding uh, when we're working with with clients. Mm-hmm. Wow, grief seems like a much more common emotion if you break it down and take it away from death. You know, I mean, if if yes. you look at all the other. And I'm sure that, okay, so let's segue here from grief. Let's talk about 2020 because um, (laughs) I think it's a perfect segue. Uh, As far as what happened in your business, I mean, I know, um, and again, it's not my wheelhouse of understanding, but I know in some of the Facebook groups, the designer Facebook groups that I follow, um, questions all about economics and PPP and this and that and it was crazy. So how did it, how did that impact your business? What would you find come March? Yes, I, I think it really was a time. Um, personally, I think uh, all of the discipline that I have uh, around leadership and keeping myself grounded was very important. Uh, we did reach a, a period where we had a lot of clients um, calling, asking questions and wanting to understand uh, you know, how they could navigate this time. Um, a lot of the designers that we work with, they have two challenges from having two balance sheets. And I think that people don't always understand that implication is on one side, uh, designers were watching their business revenue decline. And that brought all sorts of concerns around how much is my overhead? What about payroll? Are these projects that I, I have scheduled out, are they going to continue Um, Are we going to stay in business? I mean, these were all questions people were asking. And at the same time, a lot of designers were watching the stock market decline. Uh, Maybe they had a spouse that lost a a job. Uh, So it was definitely a lot of things happening all at one time. Right. Right. And is it still, go ahead, continue. Sorry. Well, (laughs) and to your point, um, Mm -hmm. I I think we really tried to lead, we we leaned in with a lot of the um, industry organizations that we uh, work with if it's um, IDS or with it uh, ASID to try to be thought leaders 
uh, and put out a lot of information about the PPP plan. That uh, the Paycheck Protection Plan was the uh, financial support the government uh, choose to try to help uh, back up small businesses. Right. Uh, there's been some pros and some cons to that, but ultimately, I think without some form of of intervention, uh, things could have been a lot worse. The the government did play a role in um, helping secure up uh, the financial markets so that we did not go into a credit crisis uh, like we saw in 2008. And I think there is one, uh, in in my mind, there has been one bright spot uh, of the pandemic for uh, increasing people's awareness. Uh, A couple of years ago, we put out a piece, uh, The Designer's Dozen, which was 12 challenges uh, interior designers face. One of those challenges was that we did not think designers were ready for the next recession. Um, So many design firms kind of had a wake-up call back in March and April, and actually now their uh, revenue is is up to to new all-time highs. We we think it is mostly the demand for um, residential uh, design right now is very high, Um, but I think that that awareness has said uh, created a, a focus on we are going to get control of our finances. We're going to understand this going forward. Um, the other part of this is I think a lot of people had uh, put off things that they did not want to address. When it comes to like life insurance and estate planning, those are two topics that uh, I don't think anybody wakes up one day and says, well, I really want to make sure today I go out and find the right life insurance. But in an overall plan, it can be uh, very important. So I think that this time of COVID has reinforced people to understand, uh, do I have enough life insurance? Well, maybe actually, maybe I have too much, or maybe I have the wrong type. And then from the estate plan, uh, I think sometimes people think of estate planning as only what happens to me after I I die. Mm -hmm. But with COVID, it's highlighted a lot of little details that are under estate planning, like well, my I've got two adult children, uh, and I don't have healthcare power of attorney paperwork for them. So that's something that we've really um, are seeing more people say, "I want to make sure I have the documents in place, not just for when I if something happens to me at the end of life, but there's important planning documents to have in place during my life." Right. Yeah, I think it was definitely a wake up call um, for people. This time around, um, what are some of the other, you mentioned a list of 12, what was it? A list of 12 things that designers, um, oh, d- tell me that designer, the designer doesn't, it was the, uh, yeah. the, the 12 challenges that, uh, designers face. And, um, you, I don't have them all from memory, but, uh, some of just them a are, few. I Te- think the keys are like communication gaps. Um, we, you, everybody has heard of the, the right brain, left brain, and I will let me go on one one caveat here tangent. Yes, is I, I think in some ways that is a myth, and I think it's a good myth to mm-hmm. point out that it's a myth that creatives aren't good with numbers. The, the reality is, yes, there's a right brain that's analytical and rational, and the left brain is more creative, emotional. But the myth is that really we we need both parts of our brain. So I like to talk about the middle, which to me I think of the middle as being wise, and that's where we're balanced, mindful, and in flow. That's sort of if we can integrate the right brain, left brain. So that that's one myth that I talk about from mm-hmm, time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, other challenges, I think, specific to the design industry, though, would be 
um, oftentimes I hear, well, well, my spouse manages everything. And I don't, um, I don't have a problem if uh, a couple uh, delineates different tasks and one spouse manages the finances, but it's a problem to me if it's not openly communicated and that there is plans in place. So I think that most couples do have uh, benefits from having more communication about their finances. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've talked about kind of the the challenge that business owners have with two uh, balance sheets, but I know that so much of the industry coaching right now is focused on profit creation, and absolutely the business needs to be profitable. But the real question is, once you're profitable, how do you take the profit from the company to build wealth or financial independence outside of the company? Um, we don't want all of our assets to be in the company. And last, I would say, I think sometimes designers, they have this uh, innate challenge of, of chasing the lifestyles of their clients. So mm-hmm. uh, designers love, love uh, amazing and beautiful things, and these things come with a cost. Uh, but it, there is a, and I think that's where we really try to help people understand um, how much can you spend, because we don't want to put restrictions on people we want to we want to free people to be able to spend uh, and, and live abundantly. Back to that word abundance, right? And that comes from having a financial plan that's not based on arbitrary goals. You know, too often the goals may be, well, I want to retire at sixty five, or I want to spend a million, I want to save up a million dollars. And there's nothing wrong with those goals, but really the designer needs to know what their personal values are. The values need to be understood by the advisor, and then. As our role should be to help clients live as abundantly as they can, but that may mean that we are not chasing um, our or the lifestyle of our clients who may have different financial situations. Right, right. Wow. So I'm curious. Just like we were drawing some parallels be- between designers and and what you do and relationships and um, some other things. So some people think, oh, I cannot afford a designer. And sometimes it's like, how can you afford not to hire a designer, you know, at your, if you're at a certain point? So tell me, can you tell me a little bit, I mean, financial planning, like what's the, in, what's an investment of time or is it a set, do you work on set fees? How do you work with people? And I, I definitely resonate with what you're saying, uh, Jane. And after trying to, to do a few of my own design projects without help, I realized <laughs> that yeah, it can be much more expensive to to make mistakes when you try to do it yourself. Yeah, but um, I I think it highlights. So to answer your question, uh, I think it highlights a lot of the challenge of our how our industry has been set up because historically all of our compensation models uh, have been based on what they call assets under management. That is, to, to translate that, it's essentially um, a designer needs to already have. or a million dollars in an investment portfolio for a financial advisor to manage, or they won't, uh, there's no way to compensate them. And that is very much a a broken and an old school model. Um, And that's one thing that we, when we wanted to leave our, uh, the the large bank, we wanted more flexibility in how we could, uh, ways we could work with clients. To your point, mm-hmm. um, not everybody can afford to work with a financial uh, planner, but we find that uh, once an individual is making more than, uh, or as a family, 
is making more than 150 to 200,000 a year, there often becomes a lot of planning opportunities uh, that that can benefit from that. Mm-hmm. So we can charge um, monthly uh, subscriptions, which uh, allows it to break down those planning fees over the course of uh, a, a year. Okay. And it does not does not require a client to already have a uh, an established uh, portfolio in place. Okay, got it. So, so as far as um, like you said at the beginning that you ask about their their preferences for communication, but this isn't this is the idea is this is a long term relationship, um, pretty much, right? Yes, and re- we and we always say we don't like to disrupt other relationships. Um, so I think if somebody has a financial planner that they're already working with and they're very comfortable with that person, it, it's probably not best to rock that ship. Mm-hmm. But if somebody reaches a point where they feel like that they are not being, uh, their needs are not being met, they're not being communicated in a way that empowers them, uh, those are all good uh, times to to seek out other advice. Right. Got it. Um, Brad, I think that um, quite a few of our listeners are independent contractors, you know, for the freelance type of worker. And I know because I was a freelancer for a jillion years and chased chased checks forever, that it can be very hard to have a savings plan when you don't have a fixed income and you don't know when you're getting paid. So I'm wondering if, um, do, you, uh, do you work with... Uh, are some of your clients in that category of, of freelance independent contractors or not so much? We work with um, some clients that have a lot of variability around their income. And that is, uh, that is definitely a, a planning challenge. Mm-hmm. So my, I'll take one step back and try to explain how we back into this. And there's not a spreadsheet answer for this because everybody's, um, when you have lumpy, when you have lumpy income, that can mean a lot of things to different people. Uh, my baseline, uh, and this is there's caveats to this, but my baseline, I, I don't like budgeting. I think budgeting's a, a four-letter word, so we try to automate it all at the beginning. And I use what's called the 50, 30, 20 uh, rule. That means that 50% of our uh, money goes to towards essential expenses. 30% towards lifestyle. Those are those are driven by our values. And um, I'll, I'll give you, uh, we, we really believe in something called happy money. It's the five scientifically proven ways to spend your money to increase your happiness. I'll, I'll give you a, a one page that outlines that for the show notes. Love that, uh, Jane. okay. And then, so 50% essential, 30% values-based lifestyle, and 20% savings. Now, if you've got a set income every month, it's easy to schedule what that is. When someone has a uh, a lumpy in, income, as I like to call it, it's it's more critical to say um, we don't we want to try to keep that minimum monthly uh, amount that we have to have coming in as low as possible. So I just try to say, well, we don't know what our savings are going to be. Um, I need to try to keep those minimum expenses until we can build up that uh, one to two year emergency fund. Typically with my typical, uh, you know, the typical financial rule of thumb is it used to be three to six months emergency savings. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of become six months to one year. And I think that's really the key is, is if you're going to be independent, 
uh, contractor and you're not going to have consistent income, you need to make sure that that emergency fund is is a little bit larger because of the variability. Right. And then and then that 20% savings, you may not have that month by month. It may be uh, that when you get a large contract that comes in, you, you're doing your savings more at one time instead of month by month. Mm-hmm. I love that you mentioned emergency fund. So if I look at layers of, of savings, I think that it's like, you know, you're, that's, um, that's, that's like the top layer. That's like you are helping people. I, I think if I'm getting you correctly, not only have that, but also the deeper, the, the things that are um, working towards, you know, towards the future. So emergency is very like sort of within reach. And then there's this other layer of, of planning that is future oriented. Yes. Yes. So I, I typically like, and we're, we're getting a little bit into the, the, the weeds here, Jane, but Ooh, no. I like to, no, 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 this is, this is, this is good. So okay. I like to think about things as three different time frames. And you asked the question we'll, we'll echo back is when should someone start financial planning? Mm-hmm. I, I think the earlier you do it, the better. And I break those down into, from a planning perspective into three time frames. So what's happening? What, what are we going to potentially need between uh, today and the next two years? And then three to seven years is kind of that inter intermediate time. And then eight years out is the long-term planning. So it does make sense to structure our investments and our cash and all of our capital over those three timeframes. Uh, and that emergency fund is really, let's think about what are we going to need in the next one to two years? Maybe, maybe we need a down payment for a, a home or we want to buy a, a new car in a year or two. Um, then we go to that three to seven year where we're still not going to want to have extremely risky investments. Um, and then the long-term eight years, that's where we can have more uh, wealth creation focus uh, in that time frame. Mm-hmm. And that's where in that a lot of clients, I always tell people, and I'm a big believer in this, is uh, your money is you're not your biggest source of wealth. Your, your health and your time are your two most valuable assets. And for most people that if we think about that one to two year bucket and three to seven year bucket, the next five years is when people, for the most part, are going to have their their best and greatest uh, years of health. That's where we want to really going back to the intentional planning, abundant living. If there are things that you want to do with your family, uh, your friends, if you want to go travel, uh, we should not be waiting till this arbitrary retirement date. At 65, we need to make sure that we're doing some of those things uh, along the way. Mm-hmm. So, Brad, in one of our um, emails to each other, you had quoted Mr. Rogers, and it's just such a positive statement. And um, you said, Mr. Rogers said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to like, there's a lot going on right now and, um, it can, you can get negative pretty darn fast. And I love that you, you wrote that. Um, I thought that's a beautiful way to look at it. And then you sort of drew another parallel to designers as helpers. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about how you see designers right now. 
and their helper well, and their helper um, with their helper hats on. Well, I think Jane, it goes back to the ultimate reason why we chose to to specialize in working with designers is my my business coach asked me one day. He says, "What would you do differently about your business if if you were never going to retire?" And I said, "Well, I would just want to work with the most fun, creative." Uh, appreciative people that I, I could find. And he said, well, which of your clients are like that? And I said, well, we've, we've got a handful of designers and they're just just amazing people. So that was back in you know 2018. Fast forward to 2020. And I think the, the challenges that we've faced this year have really highlighted this. And, and I think of it as heart. Um, to me, designers have, uh, they are they just pour their heart into their work, into their clients, into making the world a better place. So um, I think one thing I mentioned is I was I was um, watching the other day uh, the Trim Queen. Uh, she was sharing a video of uh, raising money for her plate for Hearts Awards. Yep. And so we've got multiple things going on there. It's the design community raising money for No Kid Hungry. But at the same time, I was just absolutely mesmerized watching the video she's in the midst of a, a creative flow plate uh, a, a creative flow state as she's designing this plate and to me it's those are these little magical moments if you want to call it divine to me it just brings this inspirational joy that i, I think is priceless so t- to me that's really the heart is the world needs helpers right now the world needs goodness the world needs love and my, I think it's just, uh, I'm completely honored that part of my career that I can give back to this community. To that, I say, touche. Seriously, that, that was beautiful. And um, I feel the same way. You know, I feel as an observer and kind of integrator with this community, um, it's why I'm here. You know, there's just a lot of great stories to, to tell about these good good people. So, um, Brad, it has been a pleasure to get to know you. I I appreciate you uh, always taking time to to highlight these stories. You, you, uh, you do a remarkable job, uh, in in your work and and all the, um, advocacy you do for the industry. So, uh, looking forward to, to more times ahead. Thanks so much for listening to said. I sincerely hope you got something of value from the podcast that feeds your brain and fills your heart. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you're in the interior design trade and related industries and would like to sign up for a complimentary subscription to the printed or digital magazine, visit designerstoday.com right now and sign up. Until next time.